Chapter 9, Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. New Canaan. For Thomas, the afternoon was a blur. He did not remember helping Hans Beidler repair a break in Johann's fence. He discovered that somehow he had packed his saddlebags, his missile, crucifix, chalice, medicines, food for the journey. After supper, when Johann suggested mass, he followed him numbly to the chapel. Hearing the familiar words, but not hearing, reciting the responses by rote, he allowed the mass to float around him. His mind could not leave Hannah or their meeting at the stream. Over and over, he tried to remember every word, every feeling, as if somehow the moment would be snatched from him. But in that moment, he had almost broken a sacred vow. The ugliness of those words seemed to taunt him, laughing at his meeting with Hannah. When Johann held up his hands for the benediction, he shook himself back to reality and, without a word, followed Hans Beidler back to the cabin. Watching them leave, Father Johann put the chalice away, alone in the empty chapel. When he returned to the cabin, he found Hans asleep on his straw mat and Thomas in the loft. But sleep did not come easily for the older priest. He tossed, sat up, lay down again. Something is wrong, he thought. When Thomas and I say mass together, we have a special, special connection between us almost a communion of spirits. It was missing tonight. He pondered the last two days, Hans Beidler with panic on his face. Perhaps the sudden call for help has made Thomas more afraid of the journey than I thought. But there is something else, something he is hiding, a secret is he is not willing to share. While he lay quietly with his thoughts, he heard Thomas climb down from the loft, light a candle from the fire's embers, and walk toward the chapel. So, he observed, only Hans Beidler is sleeping tonight. I will follow him, if only for my own selfish reasons. He cannot leave until I know what is between us. As he opened the chapel door, he saw Thomas kneeling before the altar, sobbing. Turning toward the priest, Thomas buried his head in his hands. Father, bless me, for I have sinned. With the light of one candle on the altar, Thomas Yeager told Johann about his meeting with Hannah and his temptation to run away with her. I don't know whether I want to be a priest. I love her so. Johann sat silent. Hannah and Thomas, I should have seen their growing fondness for each other. I encouraged her to teach him English. He looked at his troubled face. How blind I have been, he said. You are like a son to me. Hannah is a daughter. But I was looking at both of you through the selfish eyes of an old man. They sat together without words. Finally, Johann spoke. You must go to the Beidlers as their priest. Then you can decide where you will go and what you will do. I cannot come back, said Thomas. I can never come back. Not while Hannah lives across the stream. 
Who knows where the Lord will lead us, Thomas? Let us both ask God for his guidance. He will give it to us. Not today, perhaps, or tomorrow, but it will come. He bowed his head. Let my supplication, O Lord, come near thy sight. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my request come in before thee. Deliver thou me according to thy word. The candle on the altar burned out. Thomas guided Johann on the dark path as they groped their way back to the cabin. With the first rays of the sun, the two priests stretched and got out of bed. Without a word, Thomas threw his saddlebags over his horse. Johann handed him a pouch filled with gold coins. I can't take this. It is your mission fund. There will be more next year. You will need it more than I do. Hans was waiting. Thomas slid his foot into the stirrup. Take care of Hannah. As they rode away, Johann prayed for Hans and for Thomas. The son that the Lord had given him. Protect them in the shadow of your wings. Fog shrouded the road. The trees, the trail as Thomas and Hans Beidler guided their horses across the mountain toward the Maxitani Valley. White roses appeared through the gloom. Morning birds called to one another from their green branches. But Thomas neither saw the roses nor heard the birds. In the silence of the ride, Thomas was back at the stream with Hannah. Her beautiful dark hair, her soft arms, his whole being was urging him. Forget the priesthood, turn back, turn back. But his own words blocked him. What kind of life would it be for us? Searching for the trail through the mist, Hans and Thomas continued to climb. As the trail narrowed at a thin clearing between the trees, a group of crows swept from the branches and squawked their way across the sky. Hans said, they call this mountain Krupa Berg, Crow Mountain. Descending Krupa Berg, the horses picked their way over the loose stones. Thomas and Hans could relax when they reached the valley. Stopping briefly to water the horses and take a piece of cornbread from their knapsacks, Thomas and Hans ate in silence, each within his own thoughts. Every few miles they came to a clearing and a small cabin through the mist. Hans was reluctant to stop at each one, and yet he knew that he must. A farmer, sometimes his wife, ran out to greet them and exchange the news. The boy's tension lessened when he learned of no new Indian attacks. Thomas struggled to prepare words to say to the anxious family waiting for him. After years of peace, Indians had suddenly invaded the valley. The Bergfrau had told him about the northern Lenape who were angered when the provincial council had cheated them out of their land in a two-day walking agreement. These angry northerners might be ready to turn south and threaten the Maxitani and even New Canaan. The sun had waned in the western sky when they stumbled, exhausted, into the small clearing the Bidlers called home. Matilda Bidler, hair uncombed and barefoot, wandered aimlessly around the cabin. Her husband glanced anxiously at his wife as he ladled the stew from the pot in the fireplace. She is too upset to work. He gave Thomas the trencher. 
Do you have any words of comfort for her? She thinks you can say the prayer that will bring back her daughter. Thomas took her hand. In the morning, I will say mass for your daughter's safe return. The birds and the morning noises from the cabin woke him. Rising stiffly from his mat on the porch, Thomas searched his saddlebag for the wine. As he prepared for the mass, Matilda, in the same rumpled dress she had worn the day before, wandered out on the porch. She keeps gazing up to the woods as if she expects to see Sarah coming back, her husband said. Thomas opened his Bible. If Father Johann were here, he would read from the Psalms. Our God is our refuge and strength, a helper in troubles, which have found us exceedingly. Therefore, we will not fear when the earth shall be troubled. During the Mass, Thomas felt a calm come over the woman. Your words helped her, her husband said. When they finished, Thomas sensed that Henry and Hans were anxious to get to the fields, while Matilda sat on the porch, distant and distracted. Walking Thomas to the stable, Henry saw that his wife was catching them. I know that you can do nothing for her grief, but the mass has eased her mind. For that, we thank you. He loosed Thomas's horse. I mean to stay right here with my gun handy. We worked too hard for this land to frighten easily, and we will be more cautious. Matilda is strong. She will survive. He handed Thomas the reins. Do you think you can find your way back to New Canaan? Thomas looked toward the hills, then answered, I'm not going back. I'm heading for the Conestoga. Perhaps I will go as far west as the Susquehanna. Following cautiously behind the men, Matilda held out a small rag doll. This belonged to Sarah. Please take it with you in case you see her. Thomas studied the doll, as if it could tell him about the missing girl. He looked at Matilda. You made this doll for your daughter, didn't you? She nodded. My mother also made a doll like this for my sister. Much loved is this one. He took her hand. During my travels, I promise you that I will look for your daughter. I will give you one piece of advice, said Beidler. You have your crucifix and your missile, but if you travel by yourself in this country, you will also need a gun. I know of an excellent blacksmith who sells guns. He lives in the Topahawken Valley. Stop to see him. The Maxitani path ran straight and smooth between rounded hills. Stopping for lunch beside a small stream, Thomas stretched out on the grass. He put his hand in, he put his head in his hands. Hannah, Hannah, how can I deny my love for you? But I cannot be part of your life. A Catholic priest does not turn into a Mennonite farmer. We could not marry and move west, for that would take you away from your family. You would come to hate me for it. I should go to the Conestoga families and hear their confessions, but I have felt tempted myself. I am moving away from my fears, and yes, Hannah, away from you. I promised the Bidlers to look for Sarah. That's a start. Perhaps the Lenape can help me find her. An impossible idea. I don't know where they are. I don't know their language. 
Beisler was right. If I'm going to travel by myself and survive, I need a gun. The blacksmith in the Topohokan Valley was a man eager for conversation. So you want a gun, said the smith as he hammered and clanged in his dusty shop. Tall, well-built, he spoke in the staccato tones of his work. He wiped his hands on his leather apron. Know how to use one? Thomas met his gaze. Yes. Have any money? They're not cheap. The smith turned away from the forge to plunge a piece of glowing iron into a bucket of water. Door hinges. Everybody wants them. Thomas opened his pouch and drew out a gold coin. Gold, eh? He went to the deep recesses of his shop and came back with a rifle. Best there is. Made by a gunsmith friend at Pine Forge. Maple stock, brass fittings. He tossed the rifle to Thomas. Thomas walked into the sunlight and balanced the gun back and forth with his hands. I'll take it, and the hunting bag that goes with it. What do you plan to shoot? My food. I'm heading for the Susquehanna to find where the Lenape have settled. Strange group, those Indians. Don't know why you want to find them. They are disappearing beyond the mountains anyway. Not nearly as many as I used to see ten years ago. Most of them wanted horses in exchange for furs. Came to me for the shoes. Gave me piles of pelts for four horseshoes. Had no idea how much they were worth. I became a rich man in a hurry. The smith pulled on the bellows chain. Just as well, they went away. This valley has been settled by good German farmers who needed the land. Some traveled all the way down the Susquehanna from the New York colony. Planted the seed, built their homes. It belongs to them now. Let those Indians stay over the mountains. You want to find out about the Indians? Then you need to talk to Conrad Weiser. His farm is about a day's journey west. He lived with them, knows their language, goes to Philadelphia with them to meet with the governor. Thomas recalled the Indian chiefs he had seen in Germantown. Of course, there had to be an interpreter. Facing the setting sun, with his new rifle across his saddle, Thomas, Thomas pushed his horse west. Perhaps the smith had given him a sign. Was Conrad Weiser the key to his future? With the smith's directions fresh in his mind, Thomas searched the Topahawken Valley for Conrad Weiser's home. He found a sturdy stone farmhouse, small, but far grander than the neighboring log cabins. In the garden, a woman watched and waited. Conrad Weiser, does he live here? Thomas asked her. Leaning on her hoe, she seemed to appraise him with one quick glance. The children quickly hid behind her ample skirt. This is Conrad Weiser's home at times, but he's not here now, she answered gruffly, thinking not about the question, but about her missing husband. Off again to Shemokin with a message for the Iroquois from the Provincial Council in Philadelphia. And just when I need him the most, the core needs to be hoed and the barn roof is leaking, she gestured with her hoe. And where is he? Heading for Onondaga with the Iroquois chief, Shikalemi. He spends more time with Shikalemi than he does with his own wife. She watched steadily as Thomas got off his horse. Why do you want my husband? Are you from the provincial council with another message? 
Are you telling me that the Iroquois are coming here again? The last time they stopped here on their way to Philadelphia, they ruined my orchard and ate all the vegetables in my garden. Thomas hesitated. Well, speak up, young man. Do you think I won't listen? I'm not bringing any messages. I'm looking for your husband so that I can find out where the Lenape have moved. A blacksmith in Tulpahawken told me that Conrad Weiser knew more about them than any other white man. The woman laughed. Well, if you want to learn for anything from Conrad Weiser, you'll have to find him first. She pointed. See that road heading northwest? That's the Tulpahawken path to the Susquehanna River. He's out there somewhere. A baby's cry came from a basket. Picking up the baby, she said, I have a message for you to deliver. If you find Conrad Weiser, tell him that his barn roof needs to be repaired before winter. To Thomas, the lure of finding Conrad Weiser and the Lenape gave him no choice but to follow the sun west toward the Susquehanna. At first, the Topohawken path was wide and smooth, but when he reached uncertain markings at the broad mountains, his horse had to pick its way through the clumps of weeds and detour around fallen trees. It was taking him longer than he thought. Each night, he looked for a makeshift shelter along the trail. Four stakes and a bark roof was enough. Before stretching out on the balsam branches, he shook them to rouse the snakes from their hiding places. Three days into the journey, the rains came without warning. Lightning, thunder, torrents of water. Water dripped off the brim of his hat and fell onto his sodden wool breeches. By the time he reached the ridge of the Shamokin Hill, the drenching rain had turned everything to mud. He considered wading out the storm, but his cornbread was gone. His diet of wild berries and grasses hardly sustained him. Hungry and bone-weary, he crouched beside a fallen log for the night. Shall I turn back, he asked himself. Shall I abandon this foolish, foolish search and go back? He stretched his legs, first one way and then the other. No, I cannot go back to New Canaan. I have no choice but to go on. Stiff, chilled from the dampness, he climbed upon, climbed upon his horse at first light and plodded on, hour by hour, toward the Susquehanna. The rain had stopped, but each step was treacherous. No matter. Heading into the setting sun, his horse made its steep descent to the river valley. He would have to travel as far as he could before dark. He couldn't stay on the slippery hillside all night. Sliding first one way, then another, his horse stumbled down the rocky path. Conrad, wiser be cursed, he shouted. As if to answer him, the hill roared behind him. Turning, he saw the mudslide. The air crackled with jagged noises. A tree, its roots loosened by the rain, toppled toward him. Screaming, he raised his hand to protect his face. Then, nothingness. Chapter 10, New Canaan. The stream sparkled in the summer sun, and the milkweed flowers, ripe and heavy, filled the woods with their sweet odor. Alone with her memories, Hannah felt the water, cool and calming to her touch. 
She sat there, remembering. I love you so, Liebkin, Thomas had said. But he left, and she sat by the stream, with only memories and questions. On a branch above her head, alone Phoebe called. She was alone, as alone as that bird. No word from Thomas in two months. If he does not come back, what will happen to me? How can I live without him? Elizabeth looked at Hannah, sitting on the stoop with a basket of beans in her lap. There she sits, dreaming of her lost love. She sat down beside her daughter. I asked Father Johann if he had heard from Thomas. Picking up a bean, she snipped off the ends and threw it in the basket. Not a word. He doesn't have any idea where he is. Hannah, we must talk. You have been so distant from all of us. You are living in another world. Hannah looked at her mother. She saw the tight lines around her mouth and the gray streaks in her dark hair. She was sorry that she had been sick, that she had to work so hard, that she lost a daughter. How could she make her mother understand that she and Thomas love each other? Hannah reached for her mother's hand. I am waiting for Thomas to return. We love each other. I believe he will come back and we'll go away together. Ignoring her daughter's hand, Elizabeth started up the steps, the basket under her arm. How foolish this child is, imagining that Thomas will come back. She knows nothing of love. Love brings hardship and tears and a dead child among the trees. Thomas is gone, she said, and even Father Johann doesn't know where he is. She tucked a stray strand of hair inside her dust cap. Hannah knew the gesture. Whenever her mother was upset, she fussed with her hair. Even if he does come back, you cannot marry a Catholic priest. Thomas cannot marry a Mennonite. Setting the basket of beans on the stoop, she faced her daughter. After Joshua is married, I hope we can plan your wedding. Daniel Schultz is waiting patiently for that day. I don't want to get married, Mama. How can I marry Daniel when I love someone else? What will happen to our children? Johann asked Peter as they met at the bridge. Thomas has been gone too long. I must tell Father Gordon in Philadelphia. And what about Hannah? asked Peter. She is so much in love that she sincerely believes that Thomas will come back. Elizabeth can't understand her. She forgets about young love. Thomas saw no good answer to his dilemma said Johann. He cannot marry Hannah and remain a priest. Even if he were not a priest, he would have a hard time being accepted as a Mennonite. Many Mennonites distrust us with good reason. Even though it was centuries ago, the persecution of your people along the Rhine by righteous, God-fearing Catholics is something that we would like to forget. So what do we do, Johann? We pray and trust that God will hear our prayers. Riding through the winding valley, Father Johann followed his young companion on the unfamiliar path. Dense maple leaves protected him from the blazing sun. 
Shoving aside the brambles that clutched at his legs, he cupped his hands for a drink of water from the tiny stream. He thought of his sudden summons. Die Bergfrau had sent a message with Jacob Hauk from the neighboring farm. Her mother died and she wanted Thomas to conduct the funeral service, but Thomas was gone. Maria would have to settle for him. As he traveled, his thoughts could not leave Thomas and Hannah. Elizabeth has good cause to be upset. At Thomas, at Hannah, at me, yes, at herself. She was taken with him, just like the rest of us, but Hannah most of all. Thomas has left, questioning his own ideals, leaving anger and ashes. And Hannah, who has been stirred by the joys of young love, now is left with the ashes. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Show me the way. Elizabeth is right, of course. Thomas is not coming back. What will you do now, Father Johann asked the weeping woman as they stood in a grove of pines down the slope from her home. Shoulders slumped, head down, Dieburgfrau seemed as lifeless as the wooden box in front of her. The priest closed the missile that he had used for the brief graveside ceremony. They watched as her neighbors, the Hauk brothers, covered the coffin with dirt, with sure, steady strokes of their shovels. She looked off to the afternoon sky. I've never felt so helpless in my life. Even my own medicine was not enough to heal her. Father Johann took her hand. So this was Maria Miller, the woman whom Thomas had described as having so much energy, so much life. Johann tried another question. Do you have a husband? No husband. He died many years ago. No children, and now no mother. But my cousins, the Hawks, are at the next farm. She turned to stare at the priest as if seeing him for the first time. But why did you come? I sent for Thomas. Thomas is visiting our families along the Conestoga and hasn't returned. Jacob brought me instead. He prayed, Lord, forgive my deception. Patting the grave with her shovel as if to end the ceremony, Maria looked at her cabin and the ring of pines surrounding it. I plan to stay here. Alone. I have never been afraid. Of course it will be lonely. She moved ahead on the path with quick, sure steps, as if to put her grief behind her. Let me get you some bread and cheese. You must be hungry after your long ride. They ate on the bench and the bread beside them. The quiet of the afternoon was interrupted only by the buzzing of the bees around the honeysuckle. A flight of sparrows darted across the sky. The priest saw the small cabin in the clearing, a remote place away from the rest of the world. He looked at the woman beside him, a strong, healthy woman, independent and yet caring, a healer. Could Hannah be persuaded to become a healer like Maria? Maria got up to clear away the food. You'll need to stay the night. I want to get another comforter. 
Wait, said Johann, Maria, perhaps you need not be alone through the winter. I know of a young woman who needs to find her way in life. She could come to live with you, learning your healing skills. Setting his bread on the bench, Father Johann paced up and down before her. He stared off into the distance as if to pull words from the sky. Maria, if you choose to invite her, it would be an answer to prayer. My prayer. Chapter 11. Shemokin at the Susquehanna. Pain assaulted Thomas from every part of his body. Forcing himself to open his eyes, he sensed dim shapes hovering around him and felt a gentle hand on his arm. In spite of his pain, he raised his head to find that he was lying in an Indian lean-to. Except for a feathered robe thrown around him, he was naked, a layer of moss underneath his buttocks. He explored his body with his right hand, his left hand, which had been tightly wrapped with thongs, still throbbed with pain. Both legs had been wrapped with cedar splints. It seemed that both legs and his left hand were broken. He fumbled around with his right hand. His gun and his travel pouch were by his side. What happened to his horse? He had no idea. Ruh, Ruh said a distant voice, asking him to rest in a language Thomas knew. The faces of a man and a woman came into focus. The voice belonged to a dark-skinned man. Lenape, sunrising, said the man. Pointing to the woman beside him, he said, Brightfeather, he added, die Bergfrau. The woman brought him a gourd and held his head so that he could drink a sweet-tasting liquid to help him sleep. He was confused. Sunrising? Then he remembered. The Lenape he had met at the farewell ceremony with the Bergfrau. Images came back to him. The chanting. Bright feather planting corn. How did he get here? Day turned into night and night to day as sleep came and went. When Thomas was alert enough to swallow, Brightfeather brought him cornmeal mushed in a gourd. After he finished, she and Sunrising lifted his hips so that she could change the moss under his buttocks. He was no better than a baby. To Thomas, Sunrising's lean-to seemed spacious, empty by day, when the family lived outside its walls. Lying on his mat, Thomas smelled the game roasting over the fire and heard the muted sounds of the women talking as they worked. At night, when they gathered to sleep, Thomas counted seven of them, an older son, two daughters, who modestly averted their eyes when they lay down on their mats, and a small boy who stared at him with the solemn eyes, the same small boy who had stared at him at the farewell ceremony. When the weather became unbearably hot, they carried him outside. Bright feather covered him with bare grease to keep the flies from biting. Sitting upright at last under the dense shade of a maple, he was able to identify sounds. Now he knew why he had heard many footsteps. The lean-to was along the path beside a river. It had to be the Susquehanna. He saw Indians heading for the river with their fishing spears, 
and a white trader leading his horse, jingling with pots and pans. Begging for trinkets, a crowd of children followed the trader, who ignored them. Another white man, a surveyor, with his level and sextant, stared at Thomas in surprise, but did not speak to him. The Indians watched the surveyor warily as he rode by. While Thomas sat and watched, the women spread out the corn to dry. When they were not drying corn, they were stitching moccasins and deerskin legs, leggings. They roasted and dried the turkey that sunrising brought home from his hunting. Thomas thought that they might be preparing to leave Shemokin, as he had heard this place called. Gehimitun's sunrising had told him in German. He added in Lenape, you must come home with us until you are healed. The Manitou instructed us to take care of you. Since he could not understand sunrising, Thomas was helpless to disagree. This Shuanuk does not know why we are leaving Shemokin, sunrising told his wife. But after he learns our language, he will understand that Shemokin is no place for our family. In the past, the Nanape had a place of honor here. We were known as the honored women, but now the Iroquois control the Susquehanna. The clans are fighting one another for the best land. Our way of life is threatened here. I will not raise my family under the Iroquois. They are Mingwe, poisonous snakes. We will move west like others of our clan. The day for departure had come. Bright Feather put dried corn and clustered clusters of grape leaves containing her healing herbs in her pack baskets. Sunrising and his son fashioned a frame of poles on which to drag Thomas. Propped against a tree, Thomas sat helpless, securely lashed to his frame, his left hand bound tightly against his chest. His legs were still wrapped with cedar splints. What a way to travel, he thought as he watched the last of the preparations. A helpless invalid, strapped to a makeshift chair. He was to be dragged along like a pile of wood. As Bright Feather covered the last of their cooking coals with dirt, a sudden shadow fell on Thomas, the shadow of a tall, angry man who staggered toward him, his knife poised to strike. His gray hair was a tangle of unkempt locks. You Shoanuk, you Shoanuk, the man repeated, mumbling in his own language. Although Thomas did not understand the words, he understood their anger. He tried to cry out, but no sound came from his throat. Crouching, the man lowered his knife. As Thomas lifted his arm to defend himself, he heard a cry. Lunging at the man, sunrising knocked him to the ground. Another Lenape quickly grabbed his hand and tore the knife away. As the man crumpled in a heap, his shouts turned to moans. He continued to sway and moan while sunrising held him tightly. Approaching him from the circle that had gathered, a young Indian kicked the crumpled man. You sloth, Lenape. You, Lenape woman, out of the way. Sunrising jumped to his feet. Get away from him. Get away from him. Don't you know that you are kicking our Lenape Sashem? You Mingwe should learn manners from your Sashems. 
They did not teach you arrogance. Come, grandfather, Sasunan, he said. Let my son help you to your cabin. The Shuanak, whom you attacked, is our friend, not an enemy. Thomas recognized the word Sashem. Was this broken old man really a Lenape chief? Sunrising called to his family, let us be going. As she picked up her pack, Brightfeather said, Sasunan, are we going to leave him here, my husband? My wife, we do have an obligation to our elders. It is a hard decision, but Sasunan is still chief of the Lenape at the Susquehanna. Even if he gives away our sacred wampum for rum, he is still the Sashem. He needs to remain here. We can save the one we found. We cannot save Sasunan. So that is chapter 9, 10, and 11. Quite the excitement for Father Thomas Yeager turning into quite the adventurer and backwoodsman before he comes to his fall. And so it's exciting to see this line of the plot begin to unfold. I also made two notes. One, and these are again, these aren't synchro mystical bleed throughs. Maybe there is one, maybe I'll get to that. I just want to draw attention to the, I believe it was in chapter nine. Mary Jane Schneider just kind of mentioned it, but for someone who went on to do a lot of research about the area, it feels like a kind of historical drop to another historian who's, who's keyed into very important little pieces of information from that time and from, from the, the Penn colony. Uh, the, the Walking Path Treatise, or the Walking Treatise that it, it came, became known as. You can do simple searches on that on the internet, but if you want to get more, but I'll just share with you here that that's been a very significant treatise, pretty much a fraud, and there hasn't been any reconciliation of that. My, my limited research um, shows that most of the courts denied the Delaware Nation justice on this. Uh, pretty much Thomas Penn, William Penn's son. A lot, you know, Mary Jane Schneider says the provincial council and the head of, of that or the, the, the leader for that area was Thomas Penn. And he kind of, he, he ad-libbed or, or it is supposed or said that he added something into a treatise from 50 years prior that was made with the father, William Penn, about, well, my father said that your chief said that we could have any land within a day and a half walk by foot. And so the Lenape were willing to honor that. And so first of all, it said that it, it, is, it is speculated that that wasn't even in the treaties that William Penn originally made with the chiefs, who those chiefs passed away and the new chiefs came and there was no record of that, but Thomas Penn said that he had record of it. So that was the first piece that is claimed to be fraud. And then not only was, was that fraud, but Thomas Penn and his 
cohorts and agents of his of of this action of wa walking um, what a man can walk by foot in a day and a half they spend a lot of time planning cutting a straight path through the woods he hired runners to run in like a relay ray race fashion and they were booking it they weren't walking they were running and they had planned out paths so that they could cover as much acreage as possible it's said that that after this walking path treaties the provincial council took about a million acres by doing this walking path game which was fraud and then they actually went ahead and did it and the, the way they did it they didn't honor the way that they said they would do it it's a it's a big it's a big little topic it's not a little topic it's actually a big big topic especially for for justice for for the people who were native to this land before colonists arrive and then we learn a little bit more about the colonists history and the the division between the Catholics and the Mennonites. Again, there was just this little drop by the author about from the, the senior, the senior father, or the Catholic father, that Thomas could never be with Hannah uh, because there's such a distrust between the Catholics and Mennonites because of the persecution many years prior. Um, so I thought that was interesting that that's such a huge topic in in history or at least in my my history dives has been to be to find out what has happened to cause so much discord between certain groups of people and what were they carrying with them in their emotional baggage and their collective heritage trauma when they came to the new world so and it did mention that the persecution happened along the Rhine um, and then there was also the mass witch trials that occurred as well. And she doesn't really touch on those in the book, but she does do a little touch on, on the, the Mennonites were just as persecuted as those who were, quote, can, claimed to be by um, others as witches, which if you know anything about which trials in history you just had to claim that someone was without really having much evidence you just needed to be a slightly unliked character in the community anyways that's that's a derailment yeah so the Mennonites were were coming from the most radical transformation of Christianity and really a lot of my upbringing aligns very much with some of the radical transformations they were calling for um, so I have a, a bit of a kindredness with the Mennonite faith, although I was never raised Mennonite, but we were, <laughs> the Mennonites were one of the few faith populations that um, I would say my family, church family community, we thought it was okay. You know, like their teachings were, were different and maybe, you know, not as great, but they were still good and okay. Um, I just remember having friends of the family that were Mennonite, and and there was never any any bad talk about the the Mennonite faith, like there was about Judaism or Catholicism or anything beyond that. Which, you know, paganism obviously was was never even brought up growing up. This stint was 
was dropped in one of these chapters that I just read and I wanted to call attention to that as you know it's just a small it's one sentence in this whole entire book but it is a huge weight that was being carried by by the colonists into the new world and I, it makes me think and reflect upon you know that's like th almost 300 years ago and where are we at now you know i think that these persecutions happened because 300 years ago because religion was used to organize and control society and so if there were outliers if there were these radical reformationists the mennonites or anabaptists they would have to be persecuted and annihilated because they are questioning the fabric of our society and they're going to un unweave it and you know we can speculate of all the reasons why society need to be needed to be controlled so sharply um, a lot of it has to do with imperialism uh, later capitalism and so forth but now I look 300 years later and you know we have had advancements religion is not so much the society the number one societal controlling agent I, I, I remember learning this theory in graduate school that there are seven major institutions that together, they are the, the seven major societal control institutions. I think education, mass media, religion, the family structure, healthcare, government, and wow, I at least get a 90% on this test because I got six out of the seven just there. And so I think the, the mechanisms for societal control have now diversified and there's more of them. And so it's less of a, we're not having persecution because of religious beliefs anymore, at least in the United States. But I'm so fascinated to look at this as a case study to apply in comparison with what has happened over the last three to five years, gosh, five i don't think it stretches to five i think it's just over the last three years as a virus has come into our society and caused some major divisions and has highlighted the already very stark polarized politics in our in our nation i'm not going to personally get into that but if you happen to be listening to this with a group of people it might be an interesting springboard for discussion looking at 300 years ago where religion was the ruling social control institution mechanism and how if there became um, just a few outliers they were persecuted and pretty easily um, done so like there wasn't many there weren't others who were rising up to overall kind of protect the rights of those people it's just if you have different beliefs and you're disrupting social order, you're done. William Penn was one of those people that said, oh, come here, look at what I have. Come across the boat with me and you'll have safety in this new world. But today, if something like that happened, it would be a very different response and reaction. And so 300 years ago, that's what it looked like. And now 300 years later, there's a diversification of institutions that act as social control mechanisms. 
I won't try to, maybe I'll try to list them again in review. Education, mass media, religion, family structure, healthcare, and government. I want to say the seventh one might even be politics, maybe, but that, that kind of falls under government. Anyways, interesting springboard for discussion how the last three years, how the introduction of the virus via the mass media and then the health organizations and the family structure and education, how all of those were disrupted and or utilized by the institutions for as social control mechanisms. No matter what your beliefs are, there is this very objective framework that we have institutions that we all consent to them having some control, power, and authority. And when something like a global pandemic is introduced into our societies, these are the institutions that we have already consented to give us the messages, give us the information. And I, I would say in the last three years, a lot of people have risen up against that and have, have differing points of view and have, and have different desires for where they would like to place their power and authority. Gosh, I promised I would end and let that be a springboard. But if you happen to discuss this with anyone that you're listening to this with, um, or you just think about it a little bit more, I'd, I'd also encourage you to consider how, how cancel culture is akin to persecution. And even though it's obviously a much softer version of it, you know, there has been people who have taken their lives out of their livelihoods being taken from them because of cancel culture. If you don't know what cancel culture is, I would just encourage you to do your own little research, whether you ask someone who's a little more connected to pop culture or you Google or whatever it is. I happen to know cancel culture, cancel culture because I worked with people I call myself a retired therapist now, um, but so I used to do therapy and I, I worked with people who, who were very fearful of cancel culture in their profession and how it would put an end to their, their livelihood and how it would, you know, very deeply emotionally affect them and it felt akin to persecution. So just a lot of food for thought from these three chapters in regards to some of the underpinning waves that were really deep in the colonies and MJ Schneider is bringing bringing these points up but she's bringing them up in a very beautiful story so that we can go back in time with openness with wonder with curiosity and I would invite you to continue staying in that open state that open you know how fiction does it opens your mind and your heart to stay in that space of openness, wonder, and curiosity as you ponder some of these darker topics that have been brought to the surface with just one, two, three small lines in three chapters. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next chapter.